Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sans Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs> adventures, and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Gibralis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have a multi-talented wearer of many hats with over 15 years experience working in non-profit and public sector organizations across communications, fundraising, advocacy, research, policy and community development. They are currently at Equality Australia. Travis Larkham, pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much, George. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast today um, and lovely to meet you. Um, and hello, audience. Fellow listeners, you, you like you included everyone in that. That's very nice of you. <laughs> I love to be inclusive. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, you're a quality Australia that does kind of line up. That is kind of the brand. <laughs> um, I, I didn't notice in the uh, bio this. How long have you been w- with the Quality Australia? I've been there for actually. It's coming up to my 12 month anniversary. I've just had my 12 month anniversary, so I've only been there for a relatively short time. Um, it's a relatively young organization. It started in 2017. Uh, it was sort of founded after the end of the successful campaign for marriage equality. Um, you know, uh, the people who were involved in that campaign uh, then decided that there was still more work to be done in the sphere of LGBTIQ rights, and there wasn't an organization nationally that was doing that work. So that's when Equality Australia was founded. And back then, I was very much still a public servant. Right. Okay. That's. I actually didn't realize it was. It was so new. <laughs> there was no like broad country, yeah. like something like that that already existed. That surprises me. No, there's always definitely been a lot of LGBTIQ communities and activism and things like that, but not a kind of yeah, cent- sort of central organized sort of organization like Equality Australia. No. Right. Um, so is the purpose of the organization to kind of combine the other organizations, like to keep them all in contact with each other? Or like what's like the explicit goal, I guess, uh, f- compared to other organizations? Let me actually check the exact wording of this because otherwise I might get called out. <laughs> <laughs> Equality Australia exists to improve the well-being and circumstances of LGBTIQ plus people in Australia and their families. And we're working towards a world in which everybody is equal, no matter who they are, who they love or where they come from, or what they believe. That's, again, a very admirable cause. Um, and that's is that is that the kind of stuff that you've been involved in in terms of the public sector your whole life? 
your working life, I should say? Um, it's funny because I started doing LGBTIQ plus rights campaigning, I think, when I was 17, when I first went to uni. So I've always been in, really interested and involved in at, at activism and advocacy for the rights of LGBTIQ plus people. That was quite a while ago, 20 years ago now. I'm aging myself. But, you know, it's amazing to see, I suppose, the progress that has happened. But certainly it's only, yeah, relatively recently that I've joined Equality Australia. So like lots of people come to be involved in professional advocacy organisations through being involved in a volunteer capacity first because that's often where something that you do because it's something you're passionate about and then you gain a lot of skills that can be useful if you do want to have a career in advocacy professionally. Mm. I mean, that, that does make a lot of sense in that terms of that <laughs> journey. It's, it's funny, actually, I remember a friend used to talk about animal rights in the same way where it's like the same thing here where it's like the good thing about it is the organisation will have exclusively people who really do believe in it because they wouldn't be there unless they did, which is uh, yeah, exactly the same there. We can hear more about your personal journey because I'm interested in it. I feel like it does link up quite a lot with where you are now and the work you're doing. But I guess I've got a feeling that your choice of book might also tie in with all that. So how about we start with a book? So your choice of book for today is? So I've chosen for today a book called As Beautiful As Any Other, A Memoir of My Body. It's written by an author, Dr. Kaya Wilson who's someone who I happen to know and who I actually met when we both performed at Queer Stories in Canberra in 2020, hmm, 2021. So not that long ago, but it feels like a very long time ago because a lot has happened since then. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and Kaya, so obviously I was impressed by Kaya's reading and bought his book and it's a really beautiful, beautifully written memoir from someone who is a transgender man and but that's I think not the only thing that's interesting about Kaya. Kaya does have a very interesting story in lots of ways. He has he grew up sort of traveling the world with his parents and he lived in all like many many different places in Africa, in Aruba, in in, in England as well. He is really well traveled from birth practically and uh, he also has an amazing story in terms of the things he survived in his own life. Kaya is sort of a an ocean lover. He is a tsunami scientist in his bio and he loves to surf. And the book sort of opens talking about um, a surfing accident that he had where he nearly kind of lost his life after he, I think he fell off and hit a sandbar and he um, fractured his neck. So he was told by doctors that he wouldn't walk again, but miraculously he does. So he's a really, I think, a really inspiring kind of person who is also really quite a fantastic author and whose book is, yeah, a really good read and such a privilege to be able to learn about his story through that way. I I think you might be the first person I've had on who, like, they've picked the book that was the person that they know like and interacted with. Is that, is that interesting seeing that like getting so much information about them <laughs> and then interacting with him in general? Like, do you bring up stuff from his life being like, Hey, this was wild that you did. Like, oh. how does that, have you engaged with that way? I just don't know. I, don't, I, just have I no guess experience. so. I mean, I'm just, I'm if you curious. write a memoir, you're kind of putting yourself up for it, right? Like people who've read your book, presumably you want people to read your book. So they're going to read about, 
the things that are in your book. And and actually for memoir, a lot of that is really personal stuff. A lot of that is kind of confronting stuff about family, for example. So, you know, suddenly, yes, anyone who's read your book knows about your life. I have not personally gone up to Kaya and asked just randomly about really intimate details of his life because I think that might be a bit much. But I kind of think he he would be kind of okay with it. Like, I think it just comes with being a public figure in terms of being a published author. You just have to accept that people know stuff about you now. It would be weird, I suppose, if someone asked him something that wasn't in his book. You Or he hadn't, like... Not publicly. <laughs> well, that's that's just a stalker. That's, yeah, that's like, how that's, do you, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. It you have a really be... nice second window there oh. on the second floor. It's really nice. Why'd you choose that color? <laughs> <laughs> It's um, it's funny to, and especially maybe it's like the nature of being a trans memoirist as well. I feel like it's really a lot of personal information to put up out there. And so maybe it's just about it's the kind of person who does that kind of activity is probably quite unguarded and probably wants to share their personal experience with the world. I would assume, mm. and that's yeah, certainly is what Kaya has done with his book. Nice, and uh, like I guess to just ask, like in terms of re- was part of the thing because you related so much to some of his journey, or was it not that relatable, or like from a family point of view, or from a travel point of view, or like any of these ones? It's funny because actually we're the same age, and we're both writers, I suppose. We're both trans, but those are about the only things we have in common. So those are definitely the points of the book that I could relate the most to were, yeah, some of those really interesting experiences that kind of characterise, I suppose, trans masculine experience. But no, I certainly didn't travel the world with my parents as a child. Would have loved to, like, would have absolutely given anything to have that kind of amazing childhood. But I, you know, it's funny because I grew up in far north Queensland in Cairns, which is a place that people actually is on, you know, some people's bucket list as a place to travel to. I didn't appreciate it a great deal because I lived there, you know, my whole childhood and I just thought it was a very small, claustrophobic little town and it was all that I'd ever known and I couldn't wait to escape and get out. And it wasn't until much later in my life that I realised, like, oh, hang on, this is a lot of people's idea of a paradise. But for me as a child, it I just had no point of reference, so I just sort of was like, oh, I just want to get out and go be with my queer people in the big city. I was going to say, I mean, it's two separate things there, whether like how beautiful it is versus also I'm guessing it might not be the most progressive values in far north Queensland, not oh. renowned for it. <laughs> it depends, depends where you are. Like I suppose Cairns has that more cosmopolitan flavour because it does have so much international tourism and it attracts a lot of people who are maybe like alternate lifestyle kind of people, but it is a small town. So the it's probably, you know, it's more the case that there's not that many queer people <laughs> and everyone knows each other. And so if you, you know, everyone knows each other in a small town, but it's like in the queer community in a small town, wow, there's zero degrees of separation. Yeah. It's yeah. There's like ten of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just all know each other. Yeah, yeah. You've, all, you've all had you've all been intimate with each other at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine that. That's it. Just no any small town, just hype, heightened. <laughs> no comment. Okay, all right. That's all right. That's all this show's about. <laughs> I guess uh, so. Along the same lines, and again, this is if it's going to personal in any way, you can let me know because I, I haven't read uh, the book. But mm-hmm. in terms of the journey from, I guess, realization and then the eventual acceptance and stuff? Is that, again, something which was not mirrored at all from his journey to yours or something like that? 
Yeah, def- definitely. I think, but also, but also very much different. But we there are similar kind of parallels in terms of um, there's a chapter where he's describing looking back through old photo albums in in his old family home in the UK and talking about photos from childhood and wearing shorts and being shirtless most of the time and having a short hairstyle that he fought really hard to be allowed to get and things like that. You know, being able to look back through your life at photos from your childhood and go, oh my God, like before you even knew what a transgender person was, before you had any concept that you you could be trans, it's so obvious that your gender identity is different to like the sex who were assigned at birth. Or at the very least, um, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. This whole topic, I guess, is... It looked like it was going in the right direction, but then there seems to be signs around the world of it not being as progressive maybe as it once was. Is that mm, yeah. is that something you want to talk about? I don't know. Is that something which... Yeah. So um, absolutely. I I came out in 2013. Now, uh, and I felt that things had progressed a fair bit, you know, in 2013. And then between 2013 and, say, last year, things had progressed even more. And I sort of felt like we were starting to come to a point where it was more normalized and people were starting to be more accepting. And I think, well, I mean, the concept of normality is maybe a bit overrated or contentious, so let's not go there. But at least in terms of just being able to be trans and have a decent life and with, you know, and not be discriminated against every minute of every day, like that was becoming more of a reality, I think. And yes, there is a very concerted push it didn't start recently. It actually started, I think, during the Trump presidency to gain that public kind of momentum. And it also emerged in the UK. It, it had been there for a little while. One of the groups that's sort of anti-trans is labelled as trans-exclusionary radical feminists. And so people like Jermaine Greer, Julie Bindle, there's a few kind of quite old school radical feminists who are very trans-exclusionary in their views. They've always been there. There's nothing really new about that. And gradually, younger waves of feminists had really worked through a lot of the issues around that and were quite accepting of trans people. And there's definitely, like, I think mainstream feminism is very trans-inclusive these days, or I'm hoping that it is anyway. Really where the attacks are coming from is more a very conservative, religious, right-wing kind of coordinated group. And they're fu- they're internationally funded and they're organised and they're kind of like, you know, if, if Equality Australia are the Jedi, these people are like the Sith kind of. Um, <laughs> you know, they're fighting against um, the things that we stand for and they have, but they do kind of use similar you know, campaigning tactics and, like, narrative intervention into the discourse, taking kind of things that happen, events that happen in the world and beating them up into a media thing. They're also embedded in the, unfortunately, becoming more embedded into the media establishment in Australia. So we didn't really have much of an anti-trans... Well, we we had just, like, really old-school transphobia in Australian media, where it's just like... "Ah." like calling you know trans people horrible names when something terrible had happened to them. But this is a really different... The thing that this new form of transphobia distinguishes itself by is using this sort of protect women and children kind of narrative to demonise trans people, and that's a new 
thing. Like it just used to be about demonizing trans people because we were freaks or weirdos. Now it's about us being a threat to women and children, and uh, which is not like in any way supported by evidence. These are myths. These are lies that are perpetuated about trans people, but they're done through social media and other kind of information warfare, essentially, uh, ways. But they also have very powerful institutional backers like former President Donald Trump and figureheads like that. I mean, who knows what Donald Trump really stood for? It's just any kind of like contentious issue that had a populist kind of flavor he would latch onto and beat it up in a really right-wing kind of way to stir up his base. So it's not really, you know, the whole idea is to polarise the discourse and kind of solidify, you know, a base of the public around sort of really right-wing conservative narrative about gender. And it doesn't just have implications for trans people. It has implications for everyone who's, you know, in some way gender diverse or gender non-conforming. You know, it's really old-fashioned. It's not particularly feminist. It basically is saying that women are helpless victims and there's no gender diversity even amongst, like, women. There's just uh, the whole thing is incredibly, you know, it, it just really reinforces those really traditional kind of, like, binary ideas about gender and sex that constrain everyone you know it's a really backward kind of Mm. thing so it's not an accident that this is happening around the same time that roe versus wade is repealed in the united states and around the same time that in the u.s as well like proud boys have started attacking pride events or don't say gay laws are introduced in florida these are all kind of part of a a bigger picture of conservative doctrine uh, basically End right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. It, it was not that far. I was expecting more uh, expletives in there, so that's all right. <laughs> it's not that much of a rant. I'm interested in this idea, though, because of the it is clearly being used as a tool for a purpose rather than from a genuine place of fear. You, like you mm. said yourself, it's, it's being used as a tactic and it's being repurposed and reworded as a specific tactic to rile up a specific group of people. Mm. So, and you would have a better insight into this than me because I, I don't. It's very tempting to obviously draw a broad brush globally because of like America's the global hegemony that it is. Mm-hmm. But America clearly has certain issues right now and has a base that is getting riled up and is going in that direction where it's quite worrying and it's going into law and it's doing all this stuff. And again, I, I would argue that it's more of a case of a certain conservative media spin that has used that mm-hmm. angle that is then trying it in other countries but it is nowhere near seeming to be as developed or as far along anyway as the US. Does it feel like it's the same or does it feel different? Like the fact that the US is like that, is that just, and don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean to relax. <laughs> oh, it's just them. We're all good. But like at the same time, mm. is the issue much stronger there? Like everywhere else, actually, it's not so bad or is it the case everywhere? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like when I say that? And I, again, I'm not trying to belittle the concerns that exist in other countries, but obviously it can almost feel like because of how bad America is for everyone else to feel grim when maybe it's not such a negative picture there. And I, I, I just don't know. I'm genuinely curious. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think there's there's lots of theories. I, I agree with you. I think if you're very online, it's very easy to kind of feel like it's happening here. And it sort of is, but not – I mean, it certainly if the, you know, the, the federal election was anything to go by and it looks like some groups are, you know, activating – some anti-trans sort of hate groups really are activating around the Victorian election as well – 
just obviously in Australia, there are different factors at play. So we're not the same country as the US. Politically, Australia has always been a bit more homogenous, a bit more centrist, less polarised than the United States. But it's also true that the groups that are operating in Australia are connected to groups operating internationally in the US, in the UK, even in parts of Eastern Europe. It's a global effort, but the results are different in different countries. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering there. Mm. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Doesn't mean to stop to relax and stop fighting though. <laughs> Definitely, like as in when it's <laughs> sorry, so we went a bit dark there. Anyway, um, no, no, that's okay. I- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I actually do. I, this is actually one of the theories I have about being somewhere that is in America, obviously, because they deal with the brunt force of this and the calculation there. Whilst somewhere like here, you almost get to see how bad it could be and then you have more time to build up a defense against it, almost like to develop the antibodies before you get the worst worst of it. So it's like, yes. yeah, it's something I've always That's true. considered a little bit. It's like having the lead time, yeah, or seeing yeah, what's happening in the States and going, okay, well, we definitely don't want that here. So what do we do to stop that? And I yeah. think that's very true. Exactly. And, you know, and, I, and I'm, I mean, it's tricky. You can't, like, characterize one country. I mean, in some ways, Australia is quite, like, slow to modernize and adapt or to adopt new cultural norms. But in other ways, once, you know, once it's kind of settled that, yeah, actually, we're okay with, like, queer people, that's fine then it just seems to become people are just like, yeah, okay, just let people live their lives. Like I think there genuinely is more of that here. We don't seem to have the same. A bit more no worries. We're a bit more probably atheists. That's what I would think. I think we don't have as much of that really evangelical Christian, God-fearing, Bible-thumping thing. I think Australians have a healthy distrust of people who use religion to punch down on minorities. Mm, that's true. As a trans man, and uh, is that a weird phrase? I don't know. <laughs> As a trans man, tell me. No, I actually don't know. Like, it's funny because in the media, and I feel like in general, even on online discourse, the trans female experience is much 
more like pronounced and much and obviously and I, for good and for bad mm. I would say like not not again not to belittle either side but it seems like in many ways the punching board and both the one that gets all the attention in a lot of ways is seems to be like the trans femme side of things mm. just like the fact that turfs exist right and like <laughs> they're very specifically using it in that tactic yeah. It just means that my interaction with the trans mass community is much smaller. Mm. I guess so. I'm saying that because you mentioned before the similarities in terms of some of the stuff about being trans mask and the stuff you saw in the book versus your own experience. And I was wondering if there's anything that pops to mind when you talk about stuff like that. That is like maybe something about the experience, which like someone's like, "Oh, what's it? What's it like being trans?" Oh my mask? gosh, yes. I mean, not there, ridiculous there task. Lots of things like that. One thing I think Kaya writes about is navigating that thing of being becoming a man in a world that's really hostile to women and particularly becoming a white man in a world where men are a threat to women. And what does that mean? And Kaya writes about being a survivor of assault and that being part of his story from before he transitioned and holding that memory and that experience. And I think the thing that strikes me about that is how many trans mass people do have, have had similar experiences that are not necessarily experiences that cis men have, but it's not seen and it's not talked about. So we don't really talk about sexual assault that trans men have experienced either before or after transition or talk about trans men as being survivors of sexual assault or of gendered violence. Because often, you know, if you transition a bit later in life, like I transitioned when I was 28, I like I lived 28 years in the world as a woman. So being the inferior gender, really, and being told in, in ways explicit or implicit that I was inferior and having my life choices kind of dictated by my gender and then you become a man and suddenly it's like do do I have male privilege now I don't know it's all really complicated and it means that for trans men yeah it's like that that experience is just so much mm, it's very complex (laughs) you can't really make a generalization about um trans men and just lump us in with say cis men and say yeah we just like have had the exact same experiences because you know, we haven't. Hmm. That's my take on that. There may be others who feel differently. But for me, yeah, that's a really interesting part of our story. And I think, um, you know, I certainly can't speak for trans or on behalf of trans women. Yeah, there, that is such a double-edged sword to be more visible and more demonized. And I think as women always do, you know, kind of in the fears and the neuroses of our society get kind of located and like projected onto female bodies mostly. And I think with trans men, we can, we we probably can fly under the radar a little bit more in some respects, Mm. but it doesn't mean that there aren't specific needs in the community that, you know, need to be addressed. Yeah, no, no, I, I just always assume that as well. I guess uh, on that, I actually am again intrigued by that because yeah, it is a, f- you've gotten to experience, I guess, both sides of it. Mm-hmm. And I, is there anything that stood out going from like now being a man in the society, like where it was quite distinct, noticeable, the difference in terms of how you were treated or how people interacted with you? Yes. <laughs> yes. And like for good and for bad, I think. In some ways, I miss the kind of closeness of, like, the female-female friendships. 
like are often those friendships are very like affectionate and warm and caring kind of relationships and like I don't find that guys relate to each other in the same way so and and also though like it's kind of weird for men and women to have a really close warm affectionate friendship right like society is not really comfortable with that very much either so <laughs> that <laughs> got a bit more complicated and I mean for me personally transitioning helped me to feel more comfortable in myself and so I think hmm. I was able to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do before I transitioned because of a lack of confidence or self-belief. And so I think when you do become who you are and acknowledge your truth and start to live that in the world, that is a really powerful thing. And then that can really propel you forward to achieve much more than you would have when you're keeping yourself small. Before I came out, I think I was living life out of a sense of responsibility to others. So I was keeping myself small because I needed to look after others before I would be true to myself in certainly feeling that it was just an internalized feeling that I would be betraying my family or perhaps like other women if I kind of left the fold and transitioned. I love that idea. It's like, I'm out. I'm joining the other team, guys. I'm done. Yeah, I'm the enemy. Joining the men. men and women. They're like cats and dogs. Hey, he, hey, welcome, dude. Yeah. It's like, he, yeah, we got one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> kind of. I, I really um, uh, love that. Yeah, it's so funny. What else? I don't know. Yeah, hearing um, guys do bro talk and seeing kind of actually how men are with other men and then how men are with women sometimes. I think that stuff is kind of funny. Just seeing it all, mm. seeing the whole kind of village and just being like, <laughs> wow, I don't really get it. Yeah. So I think my takeaway is like, wow, society, what's up with that? You know, the way that we traditionally socialize men and women in really different ways. And then we, um, but then because of like heterosexual or heteronormativity, we expect like these two people who've been socialized in completely different ways, according to different value systems, to then come together and marry and be together forever. It's like, that doesn't seem like a thing that is really a good system for relationships that are going to last a long time and things like that, you know, but it's just kind of like what society has done. There's a lot of things yeah. like that. Where like, well, this is really arbitrary. It's kind of like... um urinals like i don't get urinals i don't really use urinals i think like why wouldn't you use a cubicle like it's really awkward at work when to use a urinal when your colleague is you know i'm just saying like well but for some guys it's like they would never use a cubicle you know because there's something yeah. weird with like for them in their brain it's like it's weird if you sit down to pee well i mean like what is what, what is in defense of that? Have you you've pee? seen men's cubicles, haven't you? <laughs> like, you're not sitting on those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think I I just go along the stalls until I find the one that's clean, you know. But um, mm. but it's just pure ease of use. Go straight to the urinal. It's so much faster. Ah, uh, so you yeah. think it's like a mess avoidance thing? Oh, okay. No, no, just just ease. Just literally, what's the one that involves me doing the least? I don't even have to turn around and sit down. I just go walk in and then turn around oh, and leave. Oh, convenience. Like, oh, yeah. man, that kind of is male privilege, isn't it? It's such a, like, have you ever, like, seen the difference in the, the speed of, like, how quickly guys can go use a bathroom versus, like, you know, the lineup, the queue for the women's toilet? It's so long. Yeah. 
Yeah. Milk religion, yeah. actually. Women, women be using the toilet. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> They're always going in groups, too. What's with that? <laughs> Let's turn this into a boys' like chat. Really, What's with that as well, yeah. you know? All I can say uh, is that really Women be shopping. Bonding. I tell you, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I never really got that. I mean, my, my commitment to the cause of, you know, fitting in with female socialization was pretty low. But my, but I'm not super committed to trying to trying to be a man either. It's like some of mm. some of maleness I find very claustrophobic in a different way. Like, you know, your your choice for office attire is sort of like a plaid shirt or a blue shirt. That's it, and some chinos, and that's that's it. It's like you're not allowed to have self expression. You're not allowed to wear colors. No, you can have a different pocket square. <laughs> no. Yeah, you can have a novelty tie. Have a daffy duck tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I, I, on that note, though, actually, I'm curious, I, I, and this might be a difficult one to think of, but was this stuff where, like, pre and post, you were like, ah, oh, I maybe was giving, I was being a bit harsh on guys for this, or they were, that this isn't as easy as I thought, or stuff like that. Was there anything, experiences like that as well? Uh, as, as a guy, I'm just humming to hear something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, was there anything like that, though, where you're like, oh, I assumed this or that, or I didn't realize it's actually more difficult or anything like that? Was there anything that sticks to mind in that regard? Yes. And I want to make it really clear that this is not like a men's rights activist, like men are victims too kind of thing. <laughs> I know. I'm, that's <laughs> definitely like, not what I'm you know, to... <laughs> It's not about demonizing anyone. Um, but uh, like traditional masculinity is a very claustrophobic kind of straitjacket that men, yeah, kind of made to wear. If you notice, like, I'll give you an example. You know, young boys, when you hear them talking, their voices go up and down, you know, they get excited and it's like they're using the full range of voice. And then by the time boys become teenagers, it's like they spoke in a monotone like this. Uh, uh, it's like the socialization that says to be a man, you have to be less expressive, less colorful, less vibrant. And that's what a, you know, like a real man is and like stiff upper lip. And you need to not acknowledge your feelings or be open about the fact that you have emotions other than rage. Rage is okay. All, the, all those kind of things. It's like, yeah, I think it does deprive men of having better connected relationships with other people and when I would after transition hanging out with cis guys I would notice that there's a certain point after like 10 15 beers where they get really huggy and they want to like you know they want to like just hug their mates and be like oh mate it's so you know they have to like really really break down their inhibitions through drinking to like get to the point where they can just be like oh my god like I'm a puddle um so I don't you know I'm really an advocate for the idea that like men can be sensitive and soft boys are great and I I think that there are newer versions of masculinity that are you know cropping up in in society that are more healthy and more connected and less about just putting on a front and being tough for the sake of being tough because like it just doesn't really it's not necessary it doesn't serve any purpose and in fact it can injure you to not be connected to what's happening inside you and it can injure the people around you because like those really there's a definite connection between men who really believe that like men have to be tough and believe in like strict gender roles and and things like domestic violence for example so those kind of belief systems, you know, don't just sort of harm men, they also harm 
other people who have to live in the same world that men have that men live in. Mm. Yeah, no, that's understandable. And I guess I, I'm just to tie it in with the book. Always got always trying to do that. Keep it keep it on brand a little bit. Is that kind of the same sort of realizations that Kaya goes through as well in his journey, or is it, do you have different ones to you that you maybe didn't notice? Yeah, I think there were yeah some similar ones, but also Kaya's story. You know what I love about reading memoirs of other trans people is actually also hearing other people's reflections and how they're different to my own. So it's really, it's definitely not the case that we have the same experience of of reality or gender roles or anything like that. I think he talks a bit about his parents and their relationship and particularly his dad who experimented with bisexuality as a young person and then went back in the closet and never spoke about it really. So it was always just kind of like a family secret. That um, is different to my story, for sure. I don't think my dad has been had a bisexual past that he's willing to admit. But <laughs> get fifteen beers into him. And uh, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he's straight. <laughs> right. But um, <laughs> fifteen beers. Yeah. So there's definitely some differences there, and we, and I think we're from actually pretty different kind of like cl- classes, socially and economically as well. Like I think Kaya's parents. Um, yeah, like really educated professionals who travelled the world and and took Kaya with them, sort of thing. And my parents are, you know, working class, and mum was a librarian, and dad was an electrician. So it's a really different kind of, you know, the gender roles you observe in those different social spheres are really different. The gender roles that I was exposed to in a working class regional town in far north Queensland were like pretty at the far end of like what it means to be a man and like getting drunk and punching on and like footy and cars like that really yeah triple m kind of blue collar macho (laughs) thing and i don't think that doesn't seem to come through at all in kaya's book (laughs) (laughs) yeah that sounds it actually sounds like yeah extremely different i feel like that that the kind of upbringing yeah that's like that kind of class difference is going to be very sharp yeah that, I mean, that's that's the point of reading different stories. So I guess before we sign off, there's one more thing I want to ask about, which is the uh, queer stories element, which you were talking mm-hmm. about. Storytelling in general, I guess. Is that something you've always been a part of? Is that something you, like, was that, was that useful for you? Was there something you love to do? And yeah, I guess, what was this storytelling thing that you uh, did with Kyle? Well, so so Queer Stories is an event. I'll do a spiel. Um, I love, so I love Queer Stories. It's quite a well-known <laughs> queer event that kind of the, the organiser, Maeve Marsden, sort of, hosts these reading queer reading nights at different towns so a lot are in sydney but they travel all over and the great thing about them is that there are authors from the local community are invited to read a story of theirs and it's a really wonderful event because you get to share a part of yourself with your local community and you get to be with other queer people and you get to realize actually that there are a lot of different queer stories and that we are really diverse. The event has a rule actually that no coming out stories. <laughs> so he's like, you have to tell a story that's not about coming out, just something kind of unusual or interesting and um, about you or your family or your life or whatever. And I think, and it also just has a really lovely energy. It's a really supportive space for artists there's a podcast you can listen to for free if I'm allowed to mention that on your podcast, George. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> you can, um, 
you know, listen to the stories from these queer people who are real people who exist. And I think the other thing I loved about the event was just getting to meet other writers. You know, it really breaks down that idea of, like, the writer is this person who's on a pedestal or lives in a turret, like, in a tower somewhere and is writing pages and pages. It's just like, no, they're just real people. There's something beautiful about sharing our stories. And storytelling is, like, just a fundamental part of human nature, like... My my love of storytelling, I think, does come from my parents, definitely. Like, mom is a really avid reader. Dad, too. Dad loves to tell stories. And they've always been really literate people. And storytelling is always a part of meaning-making in my childhood and a way of connecting to other people. And I think that's, yeah, that's what I enjoy about it. That's why I write. I like to... Yeah, delve into aspects of my experience or other people's experience or things that are happening in the world and then share those kind of thoughts with other people. It seems to make it more meaningful. It's like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, it's sort of like if you have a thought about something and there's no one there to, like, hear it, did you ever think that really cool thought? I don't know. We we need, you know, we do need to share story with other people in order to experience just like validation and to know that we exist so i felt mm. very seen after that and i had a lovely opportunity to connect with other people as well no it sounds yeah that sounds like the summary of everything good about good storytelling i think yeah right there that community element as well okay well i think we've kind of uh, covered a few broad points there which has been really fun is there anything like, should people follow you anywhere? Should I don't know. Usually I have some performers on, but for you, do you want anyone to follow you anywhere as a website or anything like that? <laughs> or they could just check out the stories? Yeah, no, check out Queer Stories. Um, my one's on there as well, Travis Larkham, spelled Larkholm. <laughs> it's a funny spelling, lots of extra consonants for no reason. But, mm-hmm. I yeah, feel free to check out that Queer Story or listen to any of the Queer Stories. I highly recommend them. And, yeah, check out Kaya's book as well. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for being on, Travis. No worries. Thank you very much, George. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.